0: It's uh, very hard to get into heaven. One's got to be as righteous as God. One has to have no sin, absolutely no sin on his debt ledger. And one has to be indwelt by Christ and in Christ, whatever that means. So not only is it hard to get into heaven, it's impossible to get into heaven. And uh, so, this gift that God has given us, which we're looking at tonight, or today, is the uh, baptism of the Spirit. We'll be looking at four passages in total, and that is a gift, and it's a gift because Jesus himself went through his own baptism, and a baptism means that he was immersed or identified with something, um, you know, that was holding us away from heaven. And God has provided by grace this way for us to go to heaven and to have eternal life with our Lord. And that eternal life starts now. So we'll be uh, looking at Matthew 3 again, Matthew three eleven, And let's begin with prayer and be thankful and grateful for all that God has done for us, especially the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who, through his work on the cross, uh, has given us eternal life, become the substitute for our sins, so that we can, with confidence, know that we are saved, and this doctrine is the greatest thing that's ever happened to us, thanks to him. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word, thank you that you described for us, and um, explain something that's really unexplainable, but yet you give the, us the words that give us understanding that uh, something miraculous has happened to every everyone in this age who has become a believer. And of course, we mean by that a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Everyone who has done that has been baptized, not by water, although many have by water, but that's not what's in view here. We thank you, Father, that through your spirit, your plan, uh, you have baptized us into union with your Son. And by that baptism, we have become your children and also a family that is united by love. You've given us everything. It's a wonderful, wonderful plan and a life. May we, Father, come to see it greater and understand it so that we may walk in it with great joy. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So imagine Jesus comes to you. He's walking towards you. And then he says, Satan, get out of my way. In fact, this is exactly what he did to Peter. When uh, the Lord told the disciples that he was going to be uh, go to Jerusalem, that he was going to be mistreated, abused, and crucified and killed, Uh, Peter said, I forbid it. In Mark 8.33, uh, the Lord, and it's not in Mark, it's only in Mark, but it's in the other Gospels as well, that the condemnation against Peter was, he said, Satan, get behind me. Really, it means get out of my way. Would he say this to us? And the answer is yes. I mean, who of us have been perfect or who of us have not actually stood in the way of the work of our Lord, whether it be in our own lives or in the lives of someone else. All of us have done it to some extent. The next thing Christ says to Peter after he says calls him Satan <clears throat> is he says this, you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. That was the issue. Peter, just prior to this, had said, you are the Christ." Jesus brought the question up. Jesus said to his disciples, who do they, who's the world? These people around here, who do they say that I am? And uh, they gave their answers of some of the suggestions by people. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're, you're a prophet. Or some say you're the prophet, which was spoken of by Moses. And then Peter says, you are the Christ. When Christ says, who do you say that I am? Peter does marvelously. He says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. But then Jesus, immediately after that, tells them that he's going to do something that, in their minds, a Christ doesn't do. Die. At the hands of evil men. I mean, that's weakness, isn't it? And then so Peter, in his weakness, has his mind on the things of men. Messiahs don't do that. But he was wrong. And all of us have been wrong. And what's wonderful about God's truth is that in God's mercy, his blessings upon you are always there, even when you don't know they're there. God doesn't increase his His blessings upon you with your greater understanding, because that's what we're all doing, is understanding more. But what God does is allow you to understand, and then you see his blessings more clearly. And when you do see them... You walk in them, you live in them, you bask in them, you love them. And this doctrine is the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. The moment you believed in Christ, Jesus baptizes. This is the first idea. There's two ideas in our passage. The first one is Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit in order to gather his grain into the barn. It doesn't say his barn. But it does, use the, it does use the pronoun, or Matt, uh, John the Baptist, who's speaking here in our passage, uses the pronoun his grain. So we're his grain, and we're going into the barn. Now, uh, if we don't know what the barn is, well, if it belongs to him, it's got to be pretty awesome, right? But the barn turns out to be the kingdom of heaven. So, the greatest of barns. But, of course, he's using the imagery of barn because he's using the imagery of grain. We're not grain, and the kingdom of heaven is not a barn. But we are his fruit. And that word, sometimes the word karpos in Greek, which is fruit, is translated in, in your Bible as grain. In the, uh, the parable of wheat, and we'll get there before we finish this doctrine, the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13 is exactly this. And if you're a believer, you're the wheat. You're the fruit. The barn is the kingdom of heaven. That, to, me, to my old chemistry days, that's potassium hydroxide, but it's not potassium hydroxide. That's caustic stuff. This is better. All right, so that's the first idea, and that's the good idea for us. But then there's the second idea. We could actually combine them together because it's all a part of the same thing. When Christ accomplishes his cross, those who accept him are the grain and those who reject him are the tares or those to be judged. And so, But really, I want to keep them as separate ideas because you and I are not destined for this judgment and we should know this. John says he's going to baptize with two things. That's it. There isn't a third one. With the Holy Spirit and fire. The second idea is that Jesus baptizes with fire in order to judge those who are not forgiven. Now, we believe in an unlimited atonement here, at least I do, and so Christ died for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2 2 says it very clearly in my book, the Bible. But, so we often, well, the, the, the sin is rejecting him. And, Jesus, if, if you've rejected him, then you're not redeemed, you're not reconciled, and you're not baptized by the Holy Spirit. And those are the two options. This is a terrible thing. It's an awful thing. And you know, God and his, you know, if there, if there weren't judgment, there would not be salvation either. There has to be one or the other. So look at our passage in Matthew 3.11, yet again, Matthew 3.11. As for me, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but... Remember, we saw this on Sunday, this men de uh, in Greek. This but here is very much a contrast from water to what's coming. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals, or I'm not fit to hold his sandals. You will bat- he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The, the, greater, uh, uh, the greaterness, right, was he's mightier than I. The great might and great, uh, greater um, identification of who Christ is compared to John would actually implicate here that John's water baptism is not even remotely close in greatness to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John's water baptism is a ritual. John's water baptism is a teaching tool. And it's teaching Israel that none of them are qualified and all of them are lawbreakers. But all of them can repent and prepare their, their way or the way of the Messiah by confessing their sins and repenting and being cleansed. They're preparing themselves to say, well, basically, I'm not fit for the kingdom of heaven, and here comes the Messiah who's going to make you fit for the kingdom of heaven. But it's certainly a ritual. Uh, the, The water baptism ritual has nothing to do, really, other than portray the baptism that is the true baptism that is to come. And the true baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then he says in verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. This winnowing fork is Jesus' ability to judge perfectly. Now, people, There's not one person on earth who can do that. But Christ can. He judges perfectly. It's in his hand. So that means if you're born again and saved, Christ has judged you perfectly. But really the judgment fell upon him. So it's a perfect judgment when he takes your place on the cross. And so the winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. That means there won't be one single human being who will not be either baptized by the Spirit or baptized by fire. There won't be one excluded. And he will gather his wheat into the barn. That word for wheat could also mean corn. It really is grain. But he will burn up the chaff. (laughs) I get it wrong every time. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Uh, This word chaff is used in multiple places also in the Old Old Testament and New, and it always refers, I I think I can confidently say, it always refers to an unbeliever, wicked, unrighteous person who is to be judged. It's always burned. But it makes sense. What is depicted here is a threshing floor. And a threshing floor was on a hill, uh, and, and it was in a breezy place, and you would put all the grain on the ground, and they would go over it with a sled, or you could stamp it with your feet, and crush it, and then you'd take this winnowing fork and throw it up in the air. When you threw it up in the air, the wind would come and take away the chaff, and the seed would fall back down to the threshing floor, and you would gather it. it, it when they when it was done, that was harvest time, and it was a great celebration. It was a, a, a marvelous time in that society. So the definition, if we, we'll be defining the baptism of the Holy Spirit in several ways. It's it really defies human words because it is just magnificent. When I say to you, you died when Christ died. You were crucified when Christ was crucified, which is true. That's what this is, the baptism of the Spirit. Yeah, that, all right, I get it, and I, you know we're glad of it. But how in the world does that really work? And it's not for us to know how that really works. I wasn't on the cross. I wasn't even alive then. But yet when he died, I died. So anyway, the baptism of the Holy Spirit thoroughly changes the character, state, or condition of a person joined eternally to the Lord to be identified with him, to partake of what he is and what he has done, and that eternally. It's not for a moment. See, a water baptism is for a moment. A water baptism is a ritual. It starts and it ends. It's over. This abides. This is permanent. What he has done. Now, this is a very, it's a long definition. More succinctly, we, we would say the baptism of the Holy Spirit enters you into union with Christ. And for me, I think that, def, that definition is too short. Because there's so much involved here, which we'll uh, explore. Uh, again, the baptism of the Holy Spirit thoroughly changes your character. It does. If you're made a brand new creature... You know, there's always a, there not always, but there's often been the debate: Does a believer have to produce good works? And you know, the answer to that is every believer will, yeah, produce some. They Have to produce some. If you were a believer in Christ and completely made new, and you did not one righteous thing, well, you'd have to question your conversion, I guess. But um, it's true: believers are. Th- are saved by faith in Christ. But your character is completely changed. Your state is changed. Your condition is changed. You're joined eternally to the Lord. That's a tremendous change to be identified with Him, to partake of what He is and what He has done. And that forever. So this is one of the many ministries of the believer, uh, for the believer, sorry, by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the many ministries of the Holy Spirit to the believer. There's regeneration, uh, which we separate from this because it's not exactly the same, but all of this happens at the same time. When you believe in Christ as your Savior, you are regenerated. That means you're born again. You're indwelled by the Spirit. You're sealed by the Spirit, and you're filled by the Spirit or with the Spirit. The filling, all of those are absolutely permanent. This is permanent. Baptism of the Spirit is permanent. Regeneration is permanent. Indwelling is permanent. Sealing, sealing is the Holy Spirit signing a contract. And that is your contract that you are forever a son or a daughter of God and you are an heir. You have an inheritance. That is permanent. The filling of the Holy Spirit is not permanent. We can lose that. It should be clear from this definition that we're not referencing water baptism at all. And in none of the passages that we look at uh, coming up that will we see water, none of them have anything to do with water baptism. Uh, The baptism of the Spirit is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not there. It is a church age doctrine, and it makes sense because John says, I baptize you with water, the one who's coming who's greater than me, whose sandals I can't even carry, uh, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We cannot be baptized until Christ is baptized with the sins of the world, with our sins. So there's many benefits to this. An amazing benefit is first we'll look at, before we get to our main passage today, is that the baptism of the Spirit supplants your relationship with the first Adam. It's in Romans 5, in Adam all die. You were born in Adam, born dead, spiritually dead. You were born separate from God, an enemy of God. You were born as a son of disobedience, alienated from God. And uh, what in the baptism of the Spirit, you are entered into union with Christ. Uh, on Thursday, we're going to look a bit at the Lord's Prayer in John 17, where he actually asks the Father that we would be in them like they are in each other, <laughs> right? So I, you know, all these things I used to hear them and go, yeah, all right, I guess I, I'd be marveling at them. But after I heard them a few dozen times, I, I don't know. I was just in my immaturity. I just wrote them down and thought, yep, 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 I know that. Yep, yep, I know that. And now I read them and I'm just blown away. I just cannot comprehend. Think of how unified, say, is the Father and the Son. And Jesus says, he prays in his prayer, Father, I want them to be in us like we're in each other. And Jesus gets what he prays for. He got what he prayed for. That's the baptism of the Spirit. When you're baptized by the Spirit, you are Divorced, really, uh, divorced through death from your old lover, the first Adam, to an organic union with the last Adam. And so, as Christ said in John fourteen twenty in the upper room, you and me and I and you. Seven words, you and me and I and you. And an incredible truth embodied in those seven words. So, the first thing that, and this happens at the moment of faith, um, we're not really going to get into, and you'll probably appreciate this, I'm not going to get into uh, what other denominations think the baptism of the Spirit is. It's not my concern. Um, some think it's a second blessing that comes after salvation. The holiness denominations think it has something to do always with tongues uh, or miracles, and uh, it does not because we'll see that. The passages speak against that stuff. Um all believers at the moment of salvation are baptized with the Holy Spirit. All believers at the moment of salvation are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, filled by the Holy Spirit, regenerated, sealed, and all of that happens immediately and it is forever outside of the filling. So the baptism of the Spirit crucifies you. you feel dead? <laughs> you remember that? Like, yeah, like exhausted? No, we mean that you've gone through a death and you've gone into a tomb. Uh, so the baptism of the Spirit crucifies and buries us together with Christ in Colossians 2.12 and Romans 6.4. We're going to be focusing on Colossians today and Romans tomorrow. So let's look at, go to Colossians 2. We'll start in verse 9 to get the context. The baptism of the Spirit crucifies and buries us together with Christ. This uh, the Greek word here, sunthano, uh, thanto. Um, Maybe heard of uh, Thanatos or Thanos if you're a, if you're a fan of the uh, Marvel movies. He's one of their awesome characters before they went woke and ruined that whole series. Anyway. Um, yeah, Thanos is, uh, if you know it, that's the Greek word for death. Uh, Thanos. And um, euthanasia, as we get that word from there. And uh, this is soon Thano. So soon means with. So he died with, and it's only used in these two passages, and only used in connection with the baptism of the spirit in these two passages. So this word means that you died with Thanos, you you died with the Lord. And it's marvelous. Cuz I want how is that even possible without me being there? Oh, I haven't been hung on a cross. I haven't died. The moment I believed in Christ, I didn't feel a death. But As you progress in the Christian life, you do feel this death, and and, uh, it's really tied to the fact of whether a believer grows up in the Lord or not, because what you've died to is the flesh and the world and sin, and if sin doesn't cut it for you anymore, and the world doesn't give you the pleasure that it used to, and in fact, there's nothing really in the world that entices you that is the death that you've gone through and it's supernatural every believer who grows in the Lord experiences that same thing every believer and none of us can take credit for it because at the moment of salvation we were crucified to the world we were crucified to the flesh we were crucified with Christ and yeah, but when we're brand new believers, we don't we maybe know it on paper, but you know, we're not living. We haven't lived it. And yet that grace blessing, which is the fact that you are no longer tied to this world in any kind of marriage or living relationship, it's there and it's yours even though you don't understand it yet. God doesn't give more of the Spirit as we grow up spiritually. The Spirit's always been there. That's the mercy of God. We have all of this. It's just that as our, as our understanding expands, the reality of what's been done to us becomes our reality. So look at 2.9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is the deity of Christ. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's hypostatic union. And in him you have been made complete. There's a Greek word, pleroma. Uh, You're absolutely in him complete, nothing to add. You remember on Sunday, when you're baptized with Christ, or baptized by the Spirit, you're clothed with Christ. How do you improve on that? You can't. You're absolutely complete. That's in Galatians 3.27. So in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. So no one can go over his head and say you're not complete. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The Jews were circumcised with a circumcision made with hands. The Gentiles were not circumcised. This is a circumcision without hands, which is every Christian. And then Paul explains it. The removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So you can see that this spiritual circumcision is definitely linked or tied to baptism. But now he moves to baptism in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Such marvelous truths here. Now, buried with him. Um, and Paul is going to write in Romans that you died and were bar- or crucified and buried with him. Here he doesn't mention the crucifixion, but he does mention the burial. So it's implied, obviously, if you're buried with him, you weren't buried alive. You're buried dead. And buried with him in baptism. Now, getting back to the definition of baptism... It's a change of character. It's a change of state. It's a change of condition. It's eternally bound to our Lord. And so, in essence, like he said, this is not my definition, someone else would, I love it. What he is and what he's done, you are and you've done. (laughs) I mean, what kind of a gift is that? It's the greatest, the greatest of gifts. God, if we could just wrap our minds around it and walk in it every day, we'd be full of joy. And, you know, this what this gives us is a life that we live every day. It's because that's in the next line. You're dead. If he just left you in the grave, well, you're dead. You're judged. You're dead. But you raised with him. See, when Christ goes into the tomb, he has to come out. He has to. He can't stay dead. Because of who he is and what he's done. So, in union with him, when we go into the tomb, we also have to come out. Okay, but first we want to focus on the um, crucifixion here, or the burial. Uh, This burial is the fact that you have have gone to the tomb with him. You're not remodeled. And so, uh, as I state here, oh, that's right, I went back. That's why I'm confused. You know, God looked you over and said, hmm, nothing here I want to keep. Yeah, if, you, if you're like moving out of your house or something, and so you say, you know what, I, someone came over and said, do you want to keep any of this stuff? And you're like, nah. I mean, do you have some keeps? Is there anything valuable? Is there anything sentimental? Is there anything that is this like a keepsake or something? God looked you over through and through and said, I don't want to keep one, one molecule. I don't want anything. And is it no wonder that tied to this doctrine in, we saw it in Sunday in Galatians. We see it here. We'll see it in Romans. And we'll also see it in Corinthians. That tied to this doctrine is don't go back. Doesn't that make sense? If I went into the tomb with Christ and then I come out with him, now with him now, and imagine that I went into the tomb with him it would be scary, <laughs> And then I come out with him, and then I'm walking with him, and then I say, you know what, Christ, see you later. I'm going to go back and do what I used to do. That makes no sense at all. If you came out of the tomb walking with Christ and go back to the flesh and back to the world, then, you know, what, does that make any sense? You would... and you know, we do it as believers but it's why do we do it it's because we don't comprehend or understand what has been done to us as if we did we would never want to go back and it, it wouldn't mean that we'd become sinless but boy would you know our our ability to conquer and do and to serve the lord every day would vastly improve when we understand what this is. We'll see coming uh, we're crucified with him. We'll see more passages on that. I love the fact that it's crucified with him, so you weren't sent into the tombs alone. you, you ever gone into a, a dark? of course you have, maybe not in years, but if you've ever been, I, for me, it was our basement. I, I had a basement in our house that I grew up in, and it was the typical dirty, dungy uh, basement dingy not dungy (laughs) it's kind of like a dungeon though and you know if mom sent you down there to get something like at night during the day it was fine because there were windows around the the top edge but that's the last place you wanted to go especially as a kid man There's monster's down there you know it i ain't going down there be scared to death uh the uh there's a C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book, The Problem of Pain. I love that. I highly recommend that book. But in The Problem of Pain, he talks about our fear of the numinous, the numinous. And the, the numinous is the spirit world. And it actually, he relates it to the fear of God. He does it marvelously. Uh, but, the, you know, that's when you're a kid and you think, well, If there was a tiger in front of you, you'd be scared, but it wouldn't be the same kind of scare as there's a ghost in there, and you actually believe it. Imagine going into tombs, never mind the basement, but the darkness of tombs, you know, like where Indiana Jones goes, but with no torch, and it's just dark, and you don't know what you're going to step on, you don't know what's there, maybe you hear some... Noises. Maybe you start to think that, yeah, demons are really alive here on planet Earth and they're around me right now. How would that make you feel? Now, imagine you did the same thing, but Christ was holding your hand as you went through. I I would assume your fear would be zero. You might get startled a little bit, but then you'd you know, squeeze his hand a little more. And that's what's here. You're not sent to death on your own. You're sent to your death with Him. So when Christ says deny yourself and pick up your cross, what do you think pick up your cross means? It means you're you're dead. You've died. Deny yourself. You're not afraid of it. Denying yourself without understanding what has happened to you and putting your faith into it, and I mean the baptism of the Holy Spirit, makes denying the flesh in the world a super scary uh, proposition. It's super scary. I love my flesh. I love the things of this world. Who of us have not? At least we tried. And it scares us to death. But we know. Christ, he says this to us. I'm giving you my peace because I conquered the world. I conquered death. I conquered sin. And you have gone through this with me. So when I say to you, pick up your cross, deny this world, deny your flesh. I'm doing this with Him. I'm not alone. Squeeze His hand. And it's His atonement. It's not your atonement. Nobody nailed you to a cross as if you had to pay for your own sins. He died. Not you. But then here you did. Then if we were left in the tombs, it wouldn't be much of a life. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is being resurrected with him. So in 2.8. Uh, no, 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 not 2.8. I'm 212. Sorry. Having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. The power of God raised him from the dead. And because you're baptized by the Spirit, meaning what he does, you do. What he is, you are. You're raised from the dead. Notice how you were raised from the dead. Through what? Underline it in your souls. Because there's so many in this world who are thinking that they have to earn such things. And it would... Make a lot of sense. Such a marvelous gift would have to be earned by us, but good Lord Almighty, how could we earn such a thing? This is by faith. The moment you believed in Christ, it's through faith in what? The working of you? No, it's the working of God, God's work. It was God's work that put Christ to death, that judged him for the sins of the world, your sins. It was Christ's work, sorry, God's work, that raised the Son of God from the dead. You now I was, uh, I'm, I'm reading this book about the last twenty-four hours of Christ, and uh, the the author turned to when he's standing in the Sanhedrin. The high priest says to him, "Are you the Christ?" And he says to him, "Yes." But well, he doesn't say yes. Sorry, he says, "I am." I am. Ego I That's his response. I am. And, you know, to the high priest, what that means is something more than the response yes. Ego I means God. And just in case that high priest was confused about what that meant, then he says you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds in his glory. It's a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7 which is a direct reference to God in His eternal kingdom. And, you know, that's what's here also. This one raised from the dead is God in the flesh. So, the baptism of the Holy Spirit then, now as you resurrected with Him, and here are the implications of that resurrection. Your brand new birth. In Christ you are made brand new, 2 Corinthians 5.17. In Colossians 3.10, you're made in the image of Christ. So this resurrection is in His image. Again, it's not something that's yours independently. It's His. And now tomorrow's lesson is going to be, not only are you His, but you're mine and I'm yours. The body of Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit unites us together. So there's the union of the Trinity. There's the union of the Trinity and the saved per- people. And then there's the unity of the saved people. There's three unions. Makes sense, right? B number three. The number three. Made in the image of Christ, Colossians 3.10. Born of the Spirit, John 3.6. That which is of the flesh is flesh, he said to Nicodemus. That which is of the Spirit is spirit. Sons and heirs, which put sons and daughters and heirs, Galatians 4, 7, and in our passage made absolutely complete. So let's look at, read it again, Colossians 2, 8. I'm repeating on purpose. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. That word elementary principles is the same stoichiometry word that we saw on Sunday, it's the ABCs of the world. The ABCs of the world say if you tell them that you believe this, they're going to say you are absolutely not. There's no one who is in union with Christ or have died with him and been raised with him. But yeah, it's true. So that's why he says don't be taken captive through the philosophies of the world. You died to the world. There's no truth for you there. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. Made complete. How marvelous. What more do I need to add to myself? Understanding. Understanding. And faith and understanding. All right, go to Colossians 3.9. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Him or her. Notice it's a new self. This is you resurrected with Christ. It's a new self, a new birth. It's being renewed to a true knowledge. Not the elementary principles of the world and the philosophies of the world, which, you know, they have their place in certain worldly functions. But when it comes to my spiritual life, they are zero. In my spiritual life, this is what matters. Nothing else. The other stuff I may need to know to, like, I don't know, do my job or hold a conversation with someone about something worldly. But when it comes to my spiritual life, none of that contributes to it. Only the truth that is in accordance with the knowledge of the image of the one who created you, made you new. So. By faith in the working of God, Colossians 2.12, you were crucified, buried, and raised together with Christ. Immediately raised now. There's no like waiting period. He didn't crucify you and then say, all right, we'll wait and see if, you come out, if we're going to let you come out. I'm going to lock you in that tomb and wait for you to be a good boy or girl and then we'll let you out. Not at all. It is at that moment. Uh, As the the wording here is in the sentence, is that they're simultaneous. When you died with him, you were raised with him. Even Jesus had to wait three days to be raised. You are raised in the very moment that you die. Immediately raised. There's no purgatory here, right? There's no, like, trial period. Uh, There's no second blessing that then you get the baptism of the Spirit, like some Pentecostals believe. Christ did it all. We receive it by grace. And so since this is true by faith, we know that it happened to us at salvation. Then does the Bible tell us that anything significant should come from this. We know that it happened. We know it by faith. I'm, I still marvel at the fact that there's not one believer I've ever met who's like questioned their eternal life. And I... People who I know are believers. I've never heard someone say, yeah, you know, well, I've never seen Christ and never seen heaven, and I believe in all, but I I don't know about that eternal life thing. Never once. Millions and millions of people, and none of them have ever met Christ, yet they're all absolutely, completely convinced. Ask a Muslim or a Hindu or any other religion, are they convinced about eternal life? And not one of them are. And even if they say they do, they're lying because in their religion you have to work for it. You work for your salvation. And if you work for your salvation, knowing that the sinner that you are, which one of them is going to say confidently that I have eternal life? None of them are. In fact, they'll feign to be humble and say, well, that's up to Allah. You know, when I get there, we'll see. But for us in Christianity, people have never met the Lord who are years and years away from death absolutely confident in their eternal life. And the reason being is because it's a supernatural function of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit within you convicts you, convinces you, testifies to your spirit that you are a child of God. Romans 8:15. So when it comes to this reality of being baptized by the Spirit, does the Bible tell me that there's anything significant that should come from this? Oh, and the answer is very much yes. In the passages that mention the baptism of the Spirit, Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, and Romans all say that there is a monumental result to this truth. And the first one that we look at is we stop seeking anything from the old self in the old world. Again, it may take us a little while to get up to speed on this because we have no understanding. As new born-again believers, we're still pretty weak and not much understanding. But um, if I reference us back to the Thessalonians, which we studied not too long ago, the Thessalonians were up to speed in a matter of months, just a few months. And Paul said that their love was mature, their faith was mature, and their hope was mature. So, this, you know, we don't, it's it's up to us how long we wait to understand. But you have the scripture, you have the spirit, you can come to an understanding by faith, and therefore, this is a brilliant blessing from the baptism of the spirit. You stop seeking anything from the old self in the old world. You see the freedom in that? Because that's where all your temptations come from. And what does sin do for you? Right? We're all old enough in this room to know the, the pleasures of sin and the repercussions of sin. Is it good? Did it really, did it really come through and what it promised? The fact that we stop seeking anything from the old self and the old world makes us free. That's death to your old lover. If we're dead with Christ, like I said, we went into the tomb with Christ, holding his hands, went into the tomb with him, came out with him, and resurrected, walking with him in his resurrection body, and then we say, all right, Christ, see you later. I'm going to go back to the world and to the flesh and do what I used to do. It doesn't make any sense. The reason it happens is because we don't understand what is so important for us. From the word of God is to understand it. And that understanding has to come from the scripture. Like we're doing here today and we always do. We still sin, of course. But we're dealing with a nature that is judged. When we say that our old nature has died with Christ and it has, obviously it hasn't terminated. It hasn't like gone away. If it did, I'd be sinless. There will be a time when it terminates, and that's when I die physically. Well, uh, That will go into the sin nature will die in the grave forever, and I will be face to face with the Lord. Magnificent. I can't wait for that day. But until then, the uh, old nature or sin nature is not terminated, but it is judged. And so the Lord, and this is important, the Lord has annulled its power. We still sin, but we're dealing with a judged nature and we are dependent upon God the Holy Spirit who who indwells us. And so by faith and application, we totally overcome the sin nature. We don't become permanently sinless not until death, but we're again dependent upon the Holy Spirit who indwells us, filled with the Spirit, dealing with an old nature that has been judged by God and crucified we hold the high ground of strength. And from that high ground, that spiritual high ground, that, can, that our strength comes from, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that we've known, put faith in and applied, we actually overrule the flesh. So you're not dealing with, an, with a terminated nature, old nature. You're dealing with a judged old nature. And so this doctrine, or our understanding of it, I should say, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the basis for the Christian victory in daily life over the sin nature. Your faith in the reality of what has happened here at the moment of salvation, your understanding of it is the basis for your victory every single day over the sin nature. Hence, passages like this that... We are led to. We're so fortunate. We're not at the Jordan River hearing John say he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then we're like, man, that sounds amazing. I wonder what it means. We're 2,000 years later with a completed canon saying, yeah, I know exactly what it means because it's written more and more and more about by God in his word, in his New Testament. I can look to all of these passages and find it. And then look at them again and again and again and say, what, you know, and come to an understanding. Now, when we understand this, and again, we're looking at the implication that we're not seeking anything from the old world, but there's things that we still want and need. You know, we're human and we have needs one of the needs we have is pleasure pleasure is not a bad thing you know ascetics came to the conclusion that i have to eradicate all pleasure from my life and then i'll be spiritual that is not in the scripture we're told that the fruit of the spirit is joy being filled with joy is very pleasurable doesn't matter what i'm doing actually if i'm filled with joy but Pleasure is promised for us in the old way. Correct. In other words, baptized by the Spirit, our bodies aren't so changed that the old way of pleasure no longer has any attraction to us. But it certainly does. There's a stimulation. As a human being, you, you need that. Love, companionship, security, fulfillment, knowledge, advancement or promotion, help. Relief? Comfort? Uh, the word, I could go on and on. But pleasure now must come in a new way. Stimulation in a new way. Love in a new way. Companionship in a new way. My security, not money anymore. Mm-mm. Not not even in, you know, I, I could be threatened to become a martyr. Uh, my security is not physical or worldly or material. Fulfillment, knowledge, advancement, help, relief, comfort, and more. All of it now have to come from a new source. Because I'm no longer a part of this world. I'm no longer a part of my flesh. But though I'm baptized by the Spirit, until I come to an increased understanding of, the world's way of pleasure is still promising me and still uh, vying for my affection. And hence, Christians get involved in addiction, for instance. Christians get involved in all kinds of things that are not of God. So look at Colossians 3.5, real quick to close here. <clears throat> Here's your application so this letter, it's a short letter, Colossians, and this, uh, this passage in three, chapter 3 actually flows right from this. Now that you're alive with Christ and you've been crucified with Christ and made alive with him, how is it that this should affect your life? Colossians 3.5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Well, there you go. So if I've been crucified with Christ... And I have. And then Paul says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. I say, well, sure, okay, I've died with Christ. But dead doesn't mean I sit around and do nothing and act dead or play dead. But dead to what? Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And he said it's because of these things. The wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Right? The wrath of God is going to come upon man because of his sin. And in them you also walked once when you were living in them. Now, you once did that. It was your only real option because you weren't crucified with Christ yet. Now, do I have to describe for you what immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed are? I don't think so. I think we all know them. The question for us is not really so much to define them, though we might need a little help here, but uh, the question for us is why they're occurring on any regular basis for someone who has been crucified with Christ. In other words, as Paul saying here, therefore, in verse 5, we always ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, because you've been crucified with Christ, why are you seeking immorality? That was the old life in which you sought immorality. By the way, these three words, immorality, impurity, and passion, are mostly centered on sexual sins. They, sexual sins do what? They destroy the soul, they destroy the body, but they do give momentary pleasure. Momentary pleasure for an end that is death. There's a great analogy someone used that I read recently. It says, you know, someone goes to work, works all day to live, to make a living. And then at night, they take that money that they've used to make a living, to buy things that put in their bodies that make them dead. I work, work, work to make a living so that I can add to my life the things that kill me. Bravo. Bravo. That is truly us as a human race. When it comes to say, for instance, sexual pleasure. Can Christ fulfill that pleasure in you? I Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now now you're getting like, what what do you even mean? What Christ is going to give me sexual pleasure? I don't mean that at all. I mean the need that is in your soul for whatever can Christ fulfill that need and if he can't he's a liar he's lied to you if he can't the fact of the matter is is that he can that he can give joy to your heart without the thing that is sinful and Christians are like well how do I do the sinful thing and still worship God you don't that's what he says so clearly you could be in the worst danger that there is when you think that you're actually succeed, succeeding in worshiping God while doing the sinful thing. Because then you're, you're truly self-deceived. And that's the worst place to be. Christ is going to some way, somehow fulfill your desire. Evil desire are things that are against God that promise to fulfill a craving. It could be any other addiction, like alcohol or drugs. It could be sex. It could be money. It could be the envy of others that you want, or it could be anything. And uh, then greed. Greed means that you want more or something else than what God wants for you. You could be so you could be super poor and have greed. Greed is you want more than what God has given you. You want something else than what God has given you. That's greed. And all of it, as Paul says here, amounts to idolatry. And the thing about idols is that they don't fulfill anything. God makes fun of idols all throughout the Old Testament in in multiple places. He says, go get your idol and have him come talk to me, for instance. And I say, well, the idol's made of wood. He doesn't talk. Why don't you pick up and carry your idol into court with me? That's one of my favorites. God tongue in cheek says, you know, I'll walk to court. You go pick him up and bring him to court because your idol can't walk. It's made of stone. He makes fun of idols all the time. And what are idols are things that we worship that give us nothing. And when we the more we worship them, the more they demand. And we give to them more and give to them more, and they give us nothing, but they keep taking and taking and taking until we're dead. And then the idol does not mourn over your death. And hence, when we idol worship, because we eventually come to know this, pretty pretty rapidly we come to know that the idol isn't giving us anything, we start to fear the idol. Idol worship brings fear. And fear brings hatred. And then comes this next set of sins. And I know I'm close out of time here, so let me just run through them quick. Fear turns to hatred because the idol doesn't deliver. And then he says in verse 8, But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, all centering around verbal sins, are the result of idol worship because the idol worship made you afraid. And now out of your fear, you're combative and angry. And you're attacking. And it's because you're afraid. And you're afraid because you're an idol worshiper. And you're an idol worshiper. Because you don't understand what happened to you when you were baptized by the Holy Spirit. So the solution's at the beginning. Discover what this doctrine is. So, do you feel like you've gone to hell and back? That's the death, at least to the tomb and back out. Do you feel like you've died? Again, if you're still interested in seeking the things of the world in the flesh, then you haven't felt the real sting of dying with Christ. And if you are a believer, you have. You've died with Him. In mercy, God never limits His blessings to which the believer understands, or to that which the believer understands. We are all completely and infinitely blessed by the baptism of the Spirit, whether we understand it or not. So we have to keep learning, keep knocking, keep seeking. Keep seeking. Keep asking, knocking on the doors of understanding, and ask God in prayer. He says at the end of this letter in Colossians, keep fervent in prayer. Keep praying, keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking. Make this make sense to me, Lord, so that I don't keep going back to the things of the world or the flesh and I live this abundant life that you've given me. So Christ is baptizing people with the Holy Spirit, to make them his wheat so he can gather them into his barn. And that process of baptizing us with the Holy Spirit makes us what we saw here today. We die with him, we're resurrected with him, and then, as we'll see tomorrow, we walk in newness of life, this new life that is just absolutely marvelous and free. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, grace, and mercy. Thank you for all things that you do for us, which is above and beyond what we could ever ask. You did it before we asked. It's like you say, you answer prayers before we even, before we even say them. We are so grateful, Father, to you for our Lord and for all things that you do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.